What's really fun is to watch all of you when you're like, what letter am I on right now? <laughs> That's the best. That's why I like doing it super fast. Too. It's like, where are you at now? Ooh. Anyway, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. So what we're going to talk about today is peace. You've heard about joy already. Peace. Are there the opposite of peace we think of as anxiety? Are people anxious these days? Is there a lack of peace? What is causing that? Well, I've got a little list here. Tell me if you disagree with any of these. Politics, COVID-19, isolation, distorted views of God, injustice, and a lack of civility. Would all of those work? And before, when you think of a lack of civility, by the way, when when we react in negative ways to those who are being negative, do we ever display a lack of civility? Do these cause division? Do these heighten anxiety and leave us without a sense of peace? I believe the answer is yes. So what kind of peace then does Jesus offer? This whole idea from Philippians chapter 4 is that the peace of God and the God of peace will be with us. And he offers this. And for this, I want us to go back to John 14, verse 27. Jesus says to his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. My peace. So there's a difference between the peace that Jesus gives and the peace that the world gives. Unlike that of the world, peace that we think of is not a lack of war or a change of circumstance. Isn't that what you think of with peace? Peace means there's no war going on, or peace means there's some sort of change in circumstance. Whatever it is that's caused me some anxiety, that's done. Now I have peace. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Listen to these words. These come from John chapter 20. The disciples are there in the upper room. It's all closed off, so no one can be there. It's the day of the cruci- It's the third day. It's the day of Jesus' resurrection. They're huddled together for fear of the Jews. And Jesus comes in amongst them, and, and now they're really kind of freaked out and scared. And so he breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit, and he says these words. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. There is a peace that we have here from Jesus that's different because this is a peace of God's presence. In Philippians chapter 4, I'd like to read to you verse 5. Let your readiness, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand or the Lord is near. Having Jesus near matters. His presence matters to bring us peace. If I know the God who made the world and everything in it, the God who died on the cross for me, the God who's in control of everything even now, is near, can I have peace? I can. Will I have peace? That's another story. But I can When the Lord is near, it can be very comforting and very empowering. Think about when the disciples were with Jesus and he raised the dead. 
Think about when they were with Jesus and he fed the 5,000 and they were part of it. Can you imagine how empowering that felt? Can you imagine how comforting that was to know that the God who has all that kind of power is standing right with them, impacting their lives for good, setting them free from their anxiety and fear? What are we going to do with all these people? Oh, Jesus is here. What are we going to do with death facing us square in the face? Oh, Jesus is here. He's in the habit of ruining funerals. So the peace from Jesus isn't just an absence of something, but he gives us his presence and protection. Listen to what verse 7 says. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So it protects us. It guards us. What is this peace in Jesus? It is a peace of his presence, which is what we have for all eternity, and his power for us, guarding our hearts and minds during these crazy, anxiety-producing times. Amen? You'd all like for it to stop there, wouldn't you? Sorry. So we know we need peace because our world's a crazy place full of anxiety. And we see that Jesus gives us peace that's better than the world has to offer. But how do we get that peace? Again, I was speaking with a student here recently, and they talked about, um, you know, I, I know these things to be true, but it tends not to be evident in my life. Hasn't made it down from my heart, my head to my heart, from my knowing to my experiential knowing. Is that true for us? Are there ever truths of God that you know, but they don't matter? Especially when anxiety, anxious times come. Okay, if that's true, how do we get there? For, for that, I want us to think of two words that are in our text in Philippians today. These two words are think and thank. Think and thank. Would you say those two words with me? Think and thank. All right. COVID has really messed with our world. One simple way for me is that I can no longer meet students in the hallways of Concordia anymore. They just aren't there. However, because of COVID, I'm able to connect with students through email. I would have never thought of doing this. I would have never had the courage or just the the mentality to do it. I I would say, I meet those who I meet in the hallways. But now, because I can't do that, it forced me to think another way. And so I began sending emails that go out to students and now it doesn't just, I don't see just a few hundred students that are on campus at the time when I'm wandering the halls. I can reach out to more than 2,000 students online, some of which have written me, many of which have read the emails, and they write back to me. And I'm making connections I would have never made to those who are in programs that don't require them to be on campus. That's a blessing. I'm getting connected to people I would have never connected with if COVID hadn't forced me to a new way of thinking. Thinking. Another is that I still have time that I don't need to be rushing around to do all sorts of events in all sorts of places. I have time. I was speaking with that student here recently and they talked about a professor on our campus who says the word busy is a curse word. Okay? And he says, you know what we need to be doing is we need to be spending 10 hours a week just thinking. But you know, as I spend time with college students, I find that they're going to school 
and they've got jobs, and some are athletes at the same time, and the jobs and the school is enough to keep them if it's... So let's just say the one I thought of most recently is one that has 19 hours, which is, take that times three, is 57, right? So it's 57 hours that they should be working on their studies. That's more than they should be already, okay? But to each his own. Then they also have two jobs. One is 12 hours a week. The other is 15 hours a week. So that's 67. That's 79 hours of work. And then they might want to think... And they might want to build relationships, and they might want to rest. You ever get so busy that life's not much worth living? It's so easy to do so much stuff that we don't have time to think. How many of us? We have games on our phones so we, don't, so we can waste time. <laughs> How many of us go on Netflix or YouTube or whatever so we can waste time? Okay? Instead of actually taking time to think about some helpful things. So what I did is I look into our text here in Philippians 4.8. What does it say? It says this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. For me, I want to take just a moment to go back to some distortions in my thinking. Because that causes anxiety. And I was clued into this idea of distortions in my thinking a while back when I was walking along listening to a book called The Wounded Heart, one of my favorite books. It's about those Um, young people who have gone through sexual abuse. And here are just a few excerpts from it. The image of God is central to developing a solid view of personality. Now think on that for a moment. If you've gone through trauma, you've gone through things, how easy is it for people to think about themselves, their central view of personhood, as I'm damaged goods, I'm a victim, I'm oppressed. Now all those things... They were damaged when they were abused. They were oppressed. They were a victim. But that's not their identity. Their identity is image of God. We are those who have a great purpose to show people what God is like. We have a great identity, being children of God, made in his image. That's who you are. It goes on then to say this. Our sinfulness, not how we've been sinned against, is our biggest problem. That forgiveness, not wholeness, is our greatest need. That repentance, not insight, is a dynamic in real change. And I have to say, that reminds me of what we spoke about earlier. It's not insight. It's not me knowing enough to make another plan that I'll fail at keeping. But it's repentance bringing me back to Jesus and the cross that brings about change. Part of when I sat down and thought about some distortions I have in my life about God, one of the distortions that I struggle with all the time is that he can't change me. Have you ever struggled with something for years and years and you simply came to the conclusion that I'll never change? Am I the only one with that? Because I could be. If I'm not the only one... Is God Almighty able to raise the dead? 
Is God Almighty able to do anything He wants to do? Could He change you? Is it a distortion when you think He can't? Does it lead you down bad paths? Does it increase your anxiety and take away your peace? Mine too. Therefore, the aim of facing our memories, he goes on to write, and grieving our suffering, we need to do those, face our memories, grieve our suffering, is not mere catharsis, not to just get it out and feel better. The aim is to expose our distorted views of God, dig out those roots of our choices, not to trust him. There's a woman I know from a previous time. This woman looked at me one time and said in my office, where was God when my uncle was molesting me? That's a great question. And you know that because she didn't feel God's presence there, that led her then to different distortions about God. God's not trustworthy. God's not here. God's not able. Has that happened in your life? Have you experienced and gone through things that have impacted how you think about God? It has, hasn't it? Now, if it, is it true that when we go through the struggles of living in a very broken world with very broken people and ourselves being broken as well, is it true then that when I go through the struggles and, and bad things happen and continue to happen to me, that God, whom I trust, is not faithful? Does it mean that God's not watching? Does it mean that God doesn't care? No, and I got a biblical example for you right here. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 21. It goes like this. Some time passed after these events. Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard. It was in Jezreel next to the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, Give me your vineyard so I can have it for a vegetable garden since it is right next to my palace. I will give you a better vineyard in its place. Or if you prefer, I will give you its value in silver. But Naboth said to Ahab, As the Lord is my witness, I will never give my ancestors' inheritance to you. See, the land is God's. We talked about that this morning in Bible class. The land is God's. I just can't give it away. It's his. It needs to stay in my family. So Ahab went to his palace resentful and angry because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had told him. Did did Naboth do what was right? Yes, he did. Naboth did what was right. Did Ahab the king do what was right? No. Now let's see what goes on. I will not, um, Ahab went and told his wife Jezebel about what um, Naboth had said. And he lay down in his bed, turned his face away, and didn't eat any food. Then his wife Jezebel came to him and said to him, Why are you so upset that you refuse to eat? Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, he replied. I told him, Give me your vineyard for silver. Or if you wish, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I won't give you my vineyard. Then his wife Jezebel said to him, Now exercise your royal power over Israel. Get up, eat some food, and be happy, for I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. She sent the letters to the elders and nobles who lived with Naboth in his city. In the letters she wrote, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people. Then seat two wicked men opposite him and have them testify against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. The men of the city, the elders and nobles who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters she had sent them. Naboth did what was right. Ahab was jealous for the land. Jezebel, Ahab's wife, set up the whole thing and had him murdered for doing what was right.
Some things never change. There's just wickedness and evil. Does, does Naboth give us reason then to not trust God because he's not trustworthy? No. When bad things happen, we need to weep over those bad things. We need to mourn over the horrible things that have happened. And for some of these young girls, as they go through what they go through, what they can never look forward to, they've kind of lost that because of how they've been abused. And we need to experience that and let them think on that and mourn what they've lost. But we can't let that continue to lead them down distorted views of God that keeps them from having peace. For me, a few of my other distortions are, God owes me when I've done my duty. Sounds like the older brother in the prodigal son story, doesn't it? If I do my duty, you owe me, God. Isn't that a distortion? When I do my duty, I'm just doing my duty. God doesn't owe me for doing my duty. Luke 17, verse 10 tells me that. God only really loves me and accepts me when I perform. Do you have any distortions like these? What will we do when we think is we'll take some time maybe to think about. I'd like to to think about other things as well. I'd like to think about Jesus. The big picture. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I had something happen recently in my life. And I was like, oh no, and I got really super anxious. Did you get anxious this week? All right, so I got anxious. And I was anxious about things. And then you know what kind of helped me? As I laid down to sleep, I just started thinking about something bigger, like creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And what I'm dealing with right now doesn't even make a tiny little grain of sand in the ocean in all of that. Do you ever just take and think about the bigness of, of life and how God is your savior, your shepherd, your king, your sustainer, your provider, like Psalm 23 talks about. Do you ever think that God gave his son to live a perfect life for you and has made you perfect? And to think on and delight in that truth? Do you ever think on that? Do you ever let those thoughts... Now again, if I've used this with you before. If, if I'm having a hard time with Kurt and Kurt and I are angry and we're yelling at each other and then Lorraine calls... When I'm angry at Kurt, like, Kurt, you're so... Hello, Lorraine, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm just great. You ever done that? So if you're like, I can't stop thinking about this. Oh, come on. Okay? I bet you just haven't tried very hard yet. Honestly. To think and to start thinking and say, I'm so wrapped up in this. Yes, but start thinking about bigger picture. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Jesus is my good shepherd, my savior, my king, my God, who loves me and gave me his own righteousness. Think about the pictures of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Think about whatever movie that portrays for you. Maybe the passion. Who knows? Whatever it might be that shows you what Jesus did for you. Think on those things. How about other distortions? Do you have any distortions in life? How about disordered loves? Let me read this list to you. Security, acceptance, God, material goods, comfort, pleasure, spouse, relatives, work, and on and on. Are they always in the correct order in your life? 
Or does work ever sneak its way up above your spouse and maybe even above God sometimes? Does your spouse kind of vie with God for top notch? Does your security mean too much? Do you ever have disordered lives? Do you ever have distorted views of how life should be? Other distortions. How about, do you ever go through life with a sense of entitlement? Isn't that a distortion? Did you not hear? I'm Steve Fick. Everything's supposed to go my way perfectly for me. Did you not get the memo? Do we ever live that? I've, I live that way. If I order on Amazon and it doesn't come the day it's supposed to come, Really? Really? You see, when I'm looking for all these other things, I'm trying to find my peace in the middle of my anxiety, not in Christ Jesus, but in a change of circumstance. Or how about a distortion like, everybody's always thinking about me all the time. Been there, done that. Or what they think is what's most important What's most important is who God is and what he's doing, not what other people are thinking. 2 Corinthians 5.21, what would happen if we thought about this? For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What if that was what we thought about? What if Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for, we, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of, your, of yourselves is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared beforehand for us to do. What if we thought about this? Jesus says to her in John eleven twenty five, with the, with the raising of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in, him, in me, though he die, yet shall he live. We're focusing, thinking about Jesus, the good shepherd in Psalm 23, where he guides, provides, and protects us, and how he provides for us this morning in the sacrament that you'll receive. There's so much we can think about or we can just let our minds think about all the stuff that just gets pounded on us day by day. Think, but now also thank, for this is much shorter. From Timothy Keller, he writes this, We pray with thanksgiving because we trust our God to give us what is right and best. It's as though God were saying this, My son, when a child of mine makes a request... I always give that person what he or she would have asked for if he knew everything I know. Do you believe that? To the degree that you believe that, you're going to have peace. If you don't believe it, you don't have peace. Whose fault is that? Is it God's? His encouragement then is to make your requests, as it says in Philippians 4, 6, with thanksgiving. Finally, I have an overwhelming story of what this kind of peace, the peace that passes understanding from Jesus and is different from the world, what that looks like. And it comes from the author of our sermon hymn. Horatio Spafford was an American lawyer who lost everything he had in the great Chicago fire of 1871. Only two years later, he sent his wife Anna and their four daughters on a ship across the Atlantic Ocean to England for a trip. The ship hit another ship on the way and began to sink. 
As it was sinking, Anna got the four little girls together and they prayed. Then the ship went under the water and they were all scattered into the waves. All four little girls drowned. Anna was found unconscious by a rescue ship floating. They rescued her. They took her to England and she cabled Horatio Spafford with the words, Saved alone. When Horatio, Horatio Spafford was on the ship over to England to bring his wife home, he began to write a hymn which, were, which we already sang, It is well with my soul. Or when peace like a river. Here's what I want you to think about. Why would a man dealing with his grief, seeking the peace of God, the peace like a river, spend the entire thing, the entire song, thinking about Jesus? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the hold, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. What does this have to do with his four little girls who are dead? Everything. Do you know why? When things go wrong, one of the ways you lose your peace is by saying, maybe I'm being punished. But no, look at the cross. All the punishment fell on Jesus. Another thing we're tempted to say is, but God doesn't care. No, look what he did for us. Look what he bore for us. The Bible gives you a God who says, I've lost a child too, but not involuntarily. I gave my child for you. You sang that hymn. And when you sing that hymn and you watch a man thinking and thanking like Horatio Spafford, you see him thinking and thanking himself into the peace of God. That is peace in Christ Jesus. Amen.